You're listening to Education Experts with EDX Education. Education is evolving. Join Heather Welch from EDX Education chatting with teachers, psychologists, parents, authors, creatives and other talented experts to keep up with the trends and what's happening from around the globe. This podcast series from EDX Education discusses home learning, school readiness, being creatives, changing in education, discussing what's next, hands-on learning, or as we like to say, learning through play. Welcome everyone, I'm Heather Welch from EDX Education. Today we're in conversation with Dr. Matthew Courtney, educator, researcher, and policymaker. Matthew specializes in using data and research to support schools and teachers as they work to improve teaching and learning. His vision is to provide high quality evidence-informed education for every child in every classroom, which he will explain this in more detail for our listeners. Today, we are chatting with Matthew about the importance of data in education, trends, and what's his next big adventure. Welcome, Matthew. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful. I know it's early in the morning for you, so I hope you've got a coffee or a tea and ready to have a chat. (laughs) I'm ready. I'm caffeinated. Fantastic. Look, can I ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them about your adventures to becoming so passionate about education? Sure, Heather. So good morning to all of our listeners. As Heather said, my name is Matthew Courtney, and I am a passionate educator. I'm dedicated to using data and research to really inform decisions and drive school improvement efforts. I started my career as an elementary music teacher in Richmond, Kentucky, at a small school called Mayfield Elementary. And that was a school full of heart and full of children who were excited to learn. Um, And as their music teacher, I was blessed to be able to work with all of the kids in our building. And through that work, I really learned and, and saw the way that we can make really intentional decisions for our learners and how intentional, thoughtful, and data research based decisions can expedite their learning. And so when my school closed in 2014, I decided rather than finding a job in a new school to dedicate the rest of my career to that cause. Fantastic. So did you always, were you always going to be a teacher? Is teaching something that you always did from a young age? Yeah, I actually started out um, on a path to become a musicologist. Um, When I was in school and in college, I studied music and thought that I would go to grad school and be a music researcher. And so research has always been a a major part of my life and my career goals. But when I was in college, I majored in education. I student taught and spent a lot of time in the schools. And those experiences were really formative for me and and really showed me the vital importance that education has. And so um, I changed gears and took that research passion with me to the education field. Fantastic. And now you're making leaps and bounds, I hear. One thing I'd say is that music and maths is one of those things that we all, music, sorry about that, I have to. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. In digital technology, we're connected with everything. doesn't matter if you've turned everything else off, it still comes (laughs) through. That's (laughs) right. What I was saying, sorry about that, Matthew. What I was saying is music, I'm always told that when I've learned music that you've got to be a good mathematician for the patterns and the beats and stuff for music. Is this true? 
Oh, certainly. There is so much math in music and literature as well. Um, when I taught music, we always worked in some of our math standards and our literature standards into the text that we were reading and singing about and the notes and the patterns and the beats and the rhythms that we were performing. Um, music is a great way to engage children um, in the learning process and expose them to new ideas and new ways of thinking. Absolutely. We love music. Children always love the music. We always use it in the early years. But listen, you're talking about data and research informed decisions to drive, you know, realistically to drive education. I mean, in businesses, we do this all the time. You look at the data and you decide, actually, that product's not selling. So we're not going to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. It's not getting the traction. So isn't it interesting now that it's one of those things that I suppose we haven't put into it. We do put into education creating the curriculums, but then we don't update it for quite a while. Would you say that's probably true? Yes, I think that this shift towards data-driven decision-making is a really important one and really timely for us now as we are recovering from the global COVID-19 pandemic. Um, you know, you think about, if you pause to think about just the volume of data that there is in the world, algorithms and data drive almost every decision that we make. Big companies like Google and Amazon, they know where you're going to go on vacation. They know what your product you're going to buy. They know what song you're going to download hours and weeks before you do. Um, <laughs> That's <very> and, true. <laughs> and so I always think, you know, what if we could do that in education? What if we could figure out how to really meaningfully channel the volume of data that teachers and parents and societies are collecting on our learners and use that to inform decisions? It's one of the biggest things actually getting access to that data. Is that the, one of the biggest, I suppose, you know, challenges that you would have? Yeah, access to the data is a huge barrier. And, and there's a lot of privacy concerns with data. Of course, we talk about that societally with um, Google, especially, or Twitter or Facebook and how they choose to handle our data. And as adults, we have some, some say in that. Um, but for our students, data privacy is a huge issue. And, and we have to find ways to increase access for educators to the data while also protecting um, the privacy of our students with their data um, and really also connecting data systems. A lot of times in education, um, the assessment data lives in an assessment system and the teacher's local data lives in a separate system and maybe the um, household income and familial data lives in another system and getting those systems to talk to each other can be a challenge. I suppose that's when someone owns one system, the other one owns it. Data is always worth you know, it's worth, I suppose, there's a financial value to data. So oh, don't generally it give it up. It certainly is. Yes, it certainly is. <laughs> so it, it's got high stakes there that you're dealing with. But listen, when you, I suppose, as a, you know, as a, you've come as a teacher and now you're, you know, education, you're doing management, you're researching, you're mm -hmm. a policymaker, you've kind of been through all the different rankings. Now, if you were to walk into a classroom, can you tell if the teacher has used evidence or evidence or data to inform their instruction? I think you can tell. One of the ways that we can spot that is how a teacher is differentiating instruction or changing instruction to meet the needs of each learner in their classroom. If every student in the classroom is doing this sort of same activity in the same way, that's probably not a very data-informed classroom. Um, and if we can see that groups of students are working on similar problems and tasks, but maybe approaching from a different um, starting point, maybe from a different level or a different um, sort of technical angle, we can tell that that teacher has really used data to inform how they are reaching those learners. Another key point, um, I like to just ask teachers, why are you doing what you're doing? 
why are you taking this step? Why are you using this curriculum? Why are you using this technique? Um, and teachers who are well steeped in the research side of teaching and learning will be able to tell you exactly why they've chosen each strategy that they're using in their classroom. So it become from experience, from research, and then you're, you're talking about providing different mediums, providing different levels. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you've got one child in the early years that really can't they recognize their numbers or letters and another one that can put them together and actually understand values. So you'd be doing different activities for each one. Yeah, that's correct. And it's really easy to spot that, as you've said, in the early years, because children come into the school system from, with a variety of backgrounds. Um, and we know that all of the things that parents do at home, um, really to prepare a child for school, that, that is not a monolithic effort. And that families approach those um, the early developmental years very differently. Uh, we know that societal barriers such as um, race and income can also um, impact the level with which a student enters into the public school system. So in those very early years, those grades one, two, and three, we can really see teachers using data to see where a student is at and meet them where they're at to try to bring them up to a more standardized level. Suppose that one another big at the barrier for the teacher would be, I, I'm, I'm not sure of the class sizes there in the government systems, but you know, in the UK and Australia, it could be anything from you know 25 to 30, that's in mm -hmm your government-based schools and your sort of private, we call the private independent schools would be between mm -hmm. 15 and 20. There's mm -hmm. a really big difference there as well. Yes, and we see that in the United States as well. And I think that, you know, the school classroom size can also be a barrier to data use. When you've got mm -hmm. more students, you have more data um, and more needs to respond to. So how do, you, how do you actually put, how are you using this data as a policymaker at the moment? So wh where are you collecting and what are you actually doing with it for the evidence base to provide the, you know, I'd say it's the higher content, the more enriched content really for curriculum. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so one of the things that I am working on lately and I'm very passionate about is this idea of what we call exploratory data analysis or EDA. And EDA is something that has existed for a long time, was really popularized um, in the 1970s um, and exists primarily now in um, sort of the industry, big business uses it and um, higher ed and full-time researchers use this to, to look at data. But I've been teaching teachers how to do this. And the idea is basically, we're gonna pull all the data that we have together into one spot. We're gonna download all the reports from all the different systems. We're gonna merge them together where we can. And we're just gonna look at the data with an open mind. Um, rather than sort of interrogating the data and asking specific questions, we're just kind of seeing what it says and what it's telling us. I like to say the EDA is like having a conversation with the data. Um, and it's, it's a great way for teachers to really understand where their different students are at, to understand complex concepts like intersectionality or the way that, you know, we are all whole people and different parts of our identity change our experience along the way. Um, so it's been a really fascinating experience, experiment I've been doing for a couple of years now. And so what are you hoping to do with this at the end? Are you hoping to provide a policy with it or hoping that the teachers have they, they actually, I suppose it's one of those things as a company, you get a whole lot of data about sales and you use some of it, you don't use all of it, but actually mm -hmm. it's using it as a holistic approach to actually build the curriculums or build, build their classrooms, I suppose, for mastery. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I, I think that as a teaching profession, classroom teachers really do um, 
have the opportunity here to tap into that data and make better decisions on their own. A lot of times we sort of wait for policymakers to, to make decisions and, and set directions. And, and that's policymakers play an important role in that. But at the end of the day, when the teacher is in the classroom with their 25 to 30 students, yeah. that door is closed. It's <laughs> up to that classroom teacher to really implement these strategies in a meaningful way to make great decisions and create a great education for their learners. And I think that one of the tools that they can use is this exploratory data analysis. We've seen some teachers make great leaps through this, this process or this technique. One of my great COVID examples, I was working with a school district and they had a group of um, Latinx students who were not logging in to their learning management platform during COVID, during virtual distance learning. And they assumed that it was a language barrier, but really that was sort of a cultural bias that they had and um, that they hadn't checked in with. And we used the exploratory data analysis process. And what we found was that this group of students all lived in the same couple of blocks. They had the same zip code, the same address codes. And so we used their address as one of the data points. What we found is that they didn't have internet access in this little pocket in this wow. neighborhood. And so the school was able to very quickly respond to the needs of those learners. Um, they were able to more accurately respond to the needs of those learners to set their biases aside and provide internet to those learners so that they could log in during COVID. So things like that, those sort of unexpected outcomes. And we're seeing more and more of that as I work with schools and teachers on this EDA technique. That's amazing. That's actually, it's a really nice thing to hear. Have you found that through COVID, I mean, uh, through the pandemic, that there has been a lot of you know, I suppose sort of positive wins like that, that we've been able to accumulate the data, been able to look at, you know, what's happening in different, as you said, different zip codes just don't have access. You just assume these days everyone has access to Wi-Fi, to internet, mm -hmm. to, to be connected because the whole world seems to be connected to something the whole time. Yeah, I do think that we've seen some good changes come out of the COVID-19 pandemic in education. I think that, as you've mentioned, um, access to the internet has been really exposed. It's been very transparent and localities have made great strides in increasing access to internet, access to technology, um, being able to provide computers or hotspots or various yeah. devices to students who didn't have them. We see a lot more of that. I think also digital learning management systems and a, a more wide scale adoption of those digital tools that schools who have traditionally been only in person, especially in rural areas where internet access has been a long-term systemic problem, they've really started to conquer those and, and make a positive shift. That's amazing. Do you find teachers sometimes, I know after the pandemic, we're all a little bit burnt out and especially teachers mm. are kind of like in this country, like frontline workers, because they're keeping people together. Do you find that they look at the EDA, EDA and they're thinking, oh no, this is going to create more paperwork? Like you have <laughs> this shift in the, I mean, it's just, I know, I know it's there to help them, but do you sort of have this challenge that first of all, you look at it and think, oh, more paperwork. And then you're like, how can I do it? But it will benefit in the long run. Absolutely, absolutely. Teachers are certainly superheroes. And we've seen that over the last couple of years as they have continually adapted to the changing conditions produced by the pandemic. Um, and I do often hear from teachers, why do I have to learn this new technique? And this is creating more work. And, and it's one of those pieces that really sort of front loads the work, but saves you time on the back end. Because one of the things that I love about EDA is that it's really a replicable process. Once you've learned it, it you can kind of almost go on autopilot with it. Um, and, and it can really speed up your processes. 
one of the things that I've done to help teachers with that on my website is a area called the repository. And your listeners can access that at www.matthewbcourtney.com forward slash repository. And there I have six auto analysis tools where a, a teacher can upload a spreadsheet and it will automatically populate various statistics and graphs and charts so that they don't have to create those things. They can just look at the numbers and interpret them. And I think the adoption of tools like that that help to expedite the EDA process are gonna be really vital to helping our teachers as they deal with this burnout and this overload to really embrace data use more meaningfully. So if I had in this in, in the UK, we have these like 11 plus or 13 plus or even in the early years, there's all sorts of, say, milestones that you can put in what they're hitting and what they're not. And just say mm-hmm. we could put in all of those milestones in this repository <laughs> and um, you could tell me that 50 percent of my class are only meeting this and 20 percent are only meeting this, you know, for example. So it takes all the data and just make, breaks it down much easier for me. Is that what you're saying with the repository? The- Yes, that's correct. So you can upload a spreadsheet and I have different ones that do different things. So I have a tool that creates correlation matrices and helps you to see relationships between various values and outcomes. I have one that does summaries like you've just described where it will say this is your average performer or your highest performer, your lowest performer. They make charts and graphs. Um, One that's really popular. I have one that's really designed for people in special education that allows you to put in just one student's data and see how interventions are impacting them and what we call an ABA research methodology. Um, so those are all free resources um, to your listeners and to teachers across the globe. So anyone can use it. It's not just USA, it's UK, anywhere, wherever you'd like. That's correct. Wherever you are, you can use it. I, I have users all, all over the globe already. So Do you feel run, free to log in. Do you run, Dr. Matthew, do you run courses to show people the benefits or do you have something that they can watch you know that explains this in more detail say for example I don't know a YouTube channel or do you do courses over a period of time yes all of the above I'm, I'm uh, I do have a YouTube channel and I'm working on a series of self-paced online courses right now um, I've recently put out a book called exploratory data analysis in the classroom and that is available on Amazon um, it's also available through through my website that really breaks this this technique down and presents it to a teacher in a step-by-step kind of way. Um, And then I do visit schools and I do speaking arrangements and really intensive workshops where we take teachers' own data and show them how to apply this technique. If you were to give advice to a teacher that was a little bit sort of standoffish about, maybe an older teacher that's been in the industry for a long time and just looks at the accumulation of paperwork and things, what would you say Mm -hmm. to them in order to bring them over the line? Yeah, I, I like to call those teachers data hesitant teachers. Uh, <laughs> and, and we certainly have those because teaching is a very heartfelt and intuitive profession. Um, and so what I say to those teachers is that this is not something that should feel like a barrier. And it, everything feels like a barrier when it's new, right? But over time, this is a tool in your toolbox to help you sort of check your intuition. A lot of times what we know the education profession is very steeped in things like intrinsic bias and teachers receive lots of training and sort of monitoring and checking their own biases and ideas about their learners. And this is another tool in your toolbox to help you sort of check and validate your intuition to make a stronger argument. Let's say that you're 
curriculum isn't working the way you think that it should. If you have some good, strong data behind that, you can convince your administration to change direction and allow you to try something new. Um, I always say that an evidence-informed educator is an empowered educator, and that if you can really articulate clearly through the data and through the research a change that needs to be made, your advocacy work is going to be more successful for your kids. Matthew, you had me at, you can make changes. <laughs> if you have the evidence <laughs> behind it, you'll actually get the changes through. I think that's where you definitely had me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's always a, you know, it's empowering because it is true. In anything, you do need to have the evidence to show the difference. What is working? That's with reading programs, writing, whatever, play-based, anything. You do need the data to come behind it. Mm -hmm. um, I know that you've worked as a policymaker. What advice would you give to other policymakers uh, seeking to use research to their inform their decisions? Yeah, I think one of the most important things that policymakers can do is to be more transparent in the way that they use research to make decisions. Um, in the United States, for example, our Every Student Succeeds Act, which is our national law, includes some provisions that require evidence-based practice use in decision-making. And I think part of the problem that we see in that is really access to the research and the evidence. And if policymakers could be more transparent in terms of, let's say, annotated bibliographies or white papers that explain this is the decision we're making and here's what the research said to help us make that decision. I think that that would lend policymakers more credibility and it models really effective research use for those in the field. Um, I think that's a really important step. I also think part of policymaking is always politics, right? That's, yeah. they, they have the same root word for a reason. And um, really trying to intentionally break away from the political side of education policymaking and focus really on what we know works and what we know is best for kids. That's where the policymakers can really embrace evidence and make change. That's exactly right. So the communication and transparency sounds like one of the main things and showing them why it works and how it works. Yeah. Absolutely. Why should teachers learn data analysis and research techniques? Like in business, I could hire a big company and they could do it for me. You know, they're consultants rather than doing it themselves in their own time. Mm -hmm. So like I said earlier, I think that a evidence-informed educator is an empowered educator. And we certainly have consultants and softwares and platforms all throughout the field that can help expedite these processes for teachers. But if a teacher doesn't truly understand how to interpret that data on their own or how to find and interpret that piece of research on their mm -hmm. own, they're always at the will of someone else. And there are unfortunately bad actors who don't always tell <laughs> the whole story. Um, and teachers need to safeguard their children in their classrooms from, from those instances. The other piece I've mentioned before is bias. And, and we know that every consultant and every advisor, every group has their own biases and their own lens with which they interpret the data and research. And if a teacher can't do that work on their own, they're always going to be reflecting someone else's lens. That's true. And they know what happens in their classroom. They know what the results are and everything like that. Exactly. Now, I am very conscious of time. So what I want to know is, oh, I just want, could you tell me what's in, so the, the book that you've just published is called Exploratory Data Analysis in the Classroom? That's correct. And could you give us a little sneak peek of what it's about? 
Sure. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah, so it is, it's really a step-by-step guide for teachers on how to access exploratory data analysis, how to actually do it. Um, I like to say it's not a theoretical tome. It's only about 120 pages. And I kept it short for a reason because teachers don't have time to read a 500 page theoretical manual. Um, Instead, it's gonna go and take teachers through step-by-step. Literally first you access the data, then you do this, then you do this, then you do this. Um, It's also supported with downloadable resources. So teachers can download um, sample data sets and follow along to check their work. There are also videos on my website that go along with the book that teachers can use to follow along. Um, And throughout the whole book, there is a vignette and we follow a teacher as she implements this process and makes realizations for her own classroom. Um, So it really is designed to be a very practical hands-on guide for teachers who are looking to try something new with their data. Fantastic. So, for example, in an early years classroom, we do a lot of play-based as mm-hmm. we mainly look at play-based learning. So in an early years classroom, I might be looking at that we're doing a lot of, say, our direct instructional play rather than free play. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. could do uh, a couple of months of each or I could do two groups, an A and B group, and then see which one's working better type thing. Yes, exactly. And, and the book will tell you exactly how to do that step by step. Oh, fantastic. That's really good. Now, what's the next adventure? Where are you, where are you off to now and what are you going to do next? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> so I, I think the next big challenge for me is I really want to start working with teachers on what we call action research or, or local research designed to promote a change in a classroom or a school building. I'm really focusing now on once we've got teachers up to speed on using and interpreting the data, how can they really experiment in a meaningful way? Post-COVID, I've been thinking a lot about this because we saw the medical profession do this in real time. They discovered a new disease, they captured the genome, they shared that, they iterated, and they did all of that in real time. We got to watch that on the news. And I just keep thinking, well, what if we could do that as a teaching profession? What if our teachers, who we already know are experimenting and iterating every day, because that's what good teaching really is, what if we could find a way to really capture and share that um, with other teachers across the globe? We know that teachers often feel isolated. There's a, a lot of research to that effect because they do close that classroom door and, and work with those 30 kids in front of them. But the problems that they're facing are not unique. Teachers across the globe are facing the same problems of practice. And if we could capture through action research methodologies, what they're doing and what they're experimenting with, we can build a network where teachers are sharing ideas and improving education together, just as we've seen our medical profession do during COVID. That would be amazing. That would be absolutely amazing if we do it as a if you do it as a global mm. entity. That would be amazing if you could yes. get everyone on the same page. But there is a lot of research. I don't know in America, but it does this coming out actually in America and the UK? And they're saying that we will be in a global skills crisis in the next 20 years with how we're currently Mm -hmm. running our schools. Have you looked into this as well, that we're not doing enough soft skills, it's too academic, children shouldn't be taught how, uh, they should be taught content, but how to actually, I suppose, interpret the content, is it real, is it fake, what's this, how does Mm -hmm. it work, and things like that, because we have, I mean, I don't know about you, Matthew, but when I went to school, we didn't have the internet, (laughs) it didn't exist then, so I won't tell you how old I am, but it didn't exist, it didn't actually come out really until after I was, I think I might have been at university, Mm. you know, it wasn't actually something that was, we didn't have as much content at our fingertips that we do now, it was going back to the library and finding those books. Mm. Yeah, yeah. 
I do think that um, we are going to be facing some skills challenges in the future. Um, and we're having those same conversations here in the United States around how we can change education to elevate more real world activities, to help students not only acquire content, but apply content yeah. in their daily life. You know, one common conversation is cell phones. Um, and schools often struggle with student-owned cell phones from a sort of classroom and school management standpoint. And, and they do cause a lot of trouble. Um, they, and they elevate bullying and, and isolate children a little bit more. But also I look around my office and every adult has a cell phone in their hand all day, every day. And if you took my cell phone away from me, I couldn't do my job because I rely so heavily on the internet access I have through my cell phone in order to do my job effectively and, and expeditiously. So I think, you know, how can we do things like leverage that cell phone in that child's hand instead of fighting against the cell phone? What if we taught them how to use that the way they're going to have to use that in a competitive global market in the future? Um, I, I think that post-COVID, we have a great opportunity to really reform our schools, change teaching and learning for the better, and increase opportunities like that for our kids. I think that's I think you're right about post-COVID. That would be one of there'll be some of some of the positives that come. And we do have a lot more data about how children mm -hmm. are learning as well. Yeah. Um, it's just sort of fast-tracked a digital, the digital world for the younger years, though. That's the yes. only thing. I'm kind of slightly disappointed. I've got small children. He's <laughs> sort of disappointed that it's fast-tracked them into um, the digital world so young and the communication processes. Mm. So, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, is amazing, fantastic, but it's one of those things as a parent, you know, and as a teacher, you're sort of fighting all the time as a caregiver. So it's just, yeah, it's one of those things. The digital world is one of those amazing ones, but also you're right. We just need to learn how to embrace it in a certain way. Yeah, and I think balance, we have to model balance for our kids. And we know that healthy adults don't spend all day on the internet, that they take breaks and they have hobbies and uh, outside real world tangible interests. And we need to encourage that in our youth as well. No, that's very true. That's very true. I think as a teacher, I'd want one of those blocking agents that none of the none of the cell phones could work. <laughs> that wouldn't be the most positive way to think about it, but it'd be a good way just to stop them for about half an hour. <laughs> sure, sure. Occasional list. breaks are definitely necessary. Or you could send them all a WhatsApp saying, could you please look up now? <laughs> Or on Insta, one of the social media, I don't know. What's the main one they use over there for children? Well, would it be WhatsApp, Line? There's so many. There's um, Snapchat. There's so yes, many. Yes, Instagram is very popular here as well. Yeah, or we could do a little dance out the front saying, are you watching now? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Matthew, thank you so much for your time today. Now, could you just let everyone know how to contact you if they're interested in speaking, if they're interested in courses, if they're interested in the repository? I know you also do a blog, Beyond the Meme, meme mm, yes. I should say. So it'd be really good if you could just let them know the best way to contact you. Would it be through a social network, through your website? Uh, yes, the best way to contact me is through my website, and that is www.matthewbcourtney.com. Matthew, thank you again. It's been amazing and you're making a massive, you're making, it's making a massive difference to teachers around the globe, hopefully, especially in the USA and keep it up. All right. Well, thank you, Heather. I hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you so much. There are so many exciting developments happening right now in education. EDX Education would love to hear from you. So do get in touch or subscribe to our podcast, which is available on Apple, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn, and so many more. This podcast series is brought to you by Heather Welch from EDX Education, as she'd like to say, let's create lifelong learners. <laughs> <laughs>